0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis Podcast. As you know, what we do in each day's episode is we take a look at the Gospel reading from today's Mass, and we try and help you understand the literal sense of Scripture. What did it mean in its original context? Today's reading is one where taking that approach is really going to be helpful. These are words that you've probably heard many times. We're going to be look at, looking at a part of the Sermon on the Mount, but I think it's it's a part of a part of that sermon where... People kind of nod and it sounds very inspiring, but they actually struggle to understand what Jesus was meaning with some of the parts here. So I think you'll find it useful to dive into the text. Matthew chapter 5 verses 20 to 26. Jesus said to his disciples, if your virtue goes no deeper than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You have learnt how it was said to our ancestors, you must not kill. And if anyone does kill, he must answer for it before the court. But I say this to you. Anyone who is angry with his brother will answer for it before the court. If a man calls his brother fool, he will answer for it before the Sanhedrin. And if a man calls him renegade, he will answer for it in hellfire. So then, if you are bringing your offering to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar, go and be reconciled with your brother first, and then come back and present your offering. Come to terms with your opponent in good time while you are still on the way to the court with him, or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I tell you solemnly, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny." So that is the text we want to look at today. There's a few different things going on here. So what's the context? We're in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus spends a lot of time contrasting false exterior righteousness with true internal righteousness. So we've already had the Beatitudes in the Sermon, and then just before this, Jesus has made it clear that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill it. And that's actually important that he said that before we get into today's passage, because On face value what he's going to do in today's passage in is say you have heard how the law has said this but now I'm going to tell you something different so at face value it sounds like he has come to abolish the law but he has prefaced it by saying I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it so let's keep that in mind as we go so let's start at verse 20 Jesus said to his disciples now that's not in the original if you just look at your uh, your Bible it'll just say it'll, it'll continue the speech and so The implication is that he's speaking to the whole crowds who are there present, and that would probably include a lot of his disciples, but it would also include people who are not yet disciples who want to be. Jesus says to them, if your virtue goes no deeper than that of the scribes and Pharisees. So the scribes and Pharisees were the learned Jewish leaders of the common Jewish people. And the Pharisees did have a kind of righteousness, In fact, the Pharisees and the scribes were seen as model followers of the Torah because they actually were very good at following all of the external requirements of the Torah. So in the Jewish mind, the scribes and the Pharisees were very righteous, but Jesus here challenges that and says, if your virtue goes no deeper than that of the scribes and Pharisees. So the scribes and Pharisees did have righteousness, but as we're going to see, they had exterior righteousness and not the true internal righteousness that God desires. So it's not that God doesn't care about external righteousness, but he cares more about internal righteousness, and that's what Jesus wants his followers to focus on. If your virtue goes no deeper than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Pretty strong words here. Jesus says if you want to be part of the new covenant, and this would include both the current life, being part of the kingdom while you're alive, and also in the next life, you have to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. For someone to get into the kingdom, they need to follow the law in the correct holy way that God desires them to have, and that's what he's going to describe. He already has described it a little bit in the Beatitudes, and now Jesus is going to give some more concrete examples of what it looks like to fulfill the law in an interior way, rather than the external legalistic way of the Pharisees. And as we'll see here, following God's law in an internal way requires wholehearted trust and obedience towards God, and then radiating that love of God to the world. So fundamentally, if you look at Matthew's gospel, what it means to uh, be holy is to love God and love neighbor, but in very concrete, specific ways, and to the point where your internal heart and soul is transformed. So Jesus starts this section by saying, if your righteousness is no deeper than the external righteousness of the Jewish leaders that you know, you're actually not going to be part of the kingdom. So it's a challenge right up front. You could say this also implies that the Pharisees were not in the kingdom of heaven, or at least at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees did not have sufficient righteousness to be part of the new covenant. Now, we do want to caveat this a little bit. Because there is a reason why the scribes and Pharisees were acting in the way that they did. In the Old Covenant, that's kind of what Jews were called to be. At least that's how the law was written. They were called to have this really profound exterior righteousness. They were called to be a beacon of righteousness to the rest of the world. That's kind of how the Old Covenant worked. But, having said that, there were some passages in the Old Testament which prophesied that a day would come when God would write his law on their hearts. So, Jeremiah 31 talks about that, and Ezekiel 36 talks about that. Here's how the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible phrases this contrast in the different kinds of righteousness. Christ's new covenant signals the dawning of this great day when he perfects the moral laws of the old covenant and brings that covenant's temporary and national phase to a close. He implements a new level of covenant righteousness that stretches beyond the boundaries of the old law in two directions. Outwardly, the scope of the new covenant is wider than the one nation of Israel. It encompasses an international kingdom in the church. All nations can now share in God's blessing and become his covenant people. Inwardly, the new covenant penetrates to the heart. It reaches within to govern personal and private life by a maximal standard of holiness. As the old covenant formed virtuous citizens in Israel, so the new covenant generates saints in the church. So I think that's a really good way of summarizing how righteousness works across both covenants. So, moving on, Jesus is now about to list six statements, which are in the form of, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. These are sometimes called the six antitheses. Each of them contains a quote or an allusion to the old law, or at least its understanding at the time. And Jesus' basic idea here is going to be that the Jews of the time know the external requirements of the law really well, because they've heard it taught to them. But Jesus now reveals the interior transformation or the the real intent behind each of those laws. As the son of God, he's providing the definitive interpretation of the law, which Christian disciples must follow. We talked about that in the last section of the sermon. Jesus is going to say that external conformity to these laws is not enough. The law has to be interiorized so that it penetrates one's heart and leads them to live according to God's ultimate intentions. So in this section, he's going to give concrete examples of how the law is to be followed in the new covenant or the kingdom of God. In the first two examples that we'll look at today, Jesus is going to call for, it. very specifically, he's going to say there needs to be an interiorization of the law so that it relates to one's motives and thoughts. But in each of these two cases, he's not going to lessen the literal force of the law. So. He's, we're just going to have one, you have heard that it was said, the statement, but then he's going to use two examples of how that would play out in the new covenant. And he's going to say that the external requirement of the law uh, still applies. You still must not kill, but there are, it also needs to be interiorized as well. Verse 21, you have learnt how it was said to our ancestors, or sometimes translated men of old. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the Jews in the time of Moses whether what these are the ancestors that Jesus is talking about they received this particular law and the Jews in Jesus time knew this law really well so they have learnt very well the law that was given to the Jewish ancestors in the time of Moses and the law is you must not kill so of course this is one of the Ten Commandments Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 is where that commandment first appears and that forbids murder This was a binding law on Jews, and in fact, it's a binding law on Christians today. In the Catholic understanding, the Ten Commandments are still binding on us uh, in a very strong way, and that's the point Jesus is going to make here. With this particular commandment, Jesus is going to say, yes, that law still applies literally, but there's also an interior requirement of it as well. You have learned how it was said to our ancestors, you must not kill, and if anyone does kill, he must answer for it before the court. So, this is a bit of a later development in Judaism. In the time of Jesus, the Jews did have their own Jewish court system to deal with people who broke the Torah laws. And apparently, these law courts did exist in the time of Jesus, and real penalties were handed out. And there were apparently local law courts in the various Jewish towns where you could bring a charge against someone. And in particular, if there was a charge of murder, that was quite a serious charge. And it was usually followed up and it usually was a real, puni- a real punishment given to someone who has committed that. Of course, there is some historical controversy uh, in this time period because the Jews were not allowed to exercise capital punishment. But what Jesus is saying here is that at the time of Jesus, you would be brought before a Jewish court if you committed murder and there would be penalties of some sort given to you. It is indeed a real commandment uh, that needs to be followed. But, verse 22, but I say this to you. The Greek word here for I is emphatic. It's quite a strong Greek word. So, it's like Jesus says, but I say this to you. So, Jesus is emphasizing that he has authority to provide the fullest interpretation of the Mosaic law. That would be pretty shocking for his hearers. Jesus is going to explain the correct interpretation of the law, the one that God has always intended. And again, we need to emphasize he's not going to cancel out the old law. He's going to give the old law its true meaning. So, he's going to give two concrete examples here of how this would play out in daily life, both of which cover how we should solve disputes with our fellow men without resulting to retaliation or hurtful words. In other words, he's going to tell his disciples that in order to fulfill that law of do not kill or do not murder, They have to remove the attitudes and actions that ultimately could lead to killing. Jesus says, if anyone is angry with his brother, and so this is being angry with someone who's done you wrong. In fact, some manuscripts have, for this phrase, actually says, anyone who is angry with his brother without cause. And I think that probably is the right reading there. Anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will answer for it before the court. Now there's two different interpretations here. What does Jesus mean when he says you will answer for it before the court? One interpretation, and I do think this makes sense, it could literally refer to the local law courts. Jesus is saying your local courts will make you accountable for being angry with your brother without cause. This is the local court law courts were the place where infringements were punished. Another interpretation when Jesus says you will answer for it before the court, it could be a metaphor. On this interpretation, the Jewish uh, law courts at the time would not punish anger, so Jesus here must be speaking metaphorically. And based on the parallel with the next phrase, when Jesus says, you will answer for for your anger before the court, he probably means you will have to answer for it in the court of heaven on judgment day. Now, I do think the former interpretation makes the most sense. I think it's reasonable to say that the local law courts would in fact punish anger minor infringements like being angry with your brother without cause but there is of course some overtones here as we'll see it gets quite explicit that he is thinking ultimately of the afterlife as well if a man calls his brother fool another translation here is whoever insults his brother now fool is a it's an insult it's not the highest level insult but it's a real insult And it was quite serious in that culture to call your brother a fool. So Jesus says, if you call your brother a fool, you will answer for it before the Sanhedrin. So there were penalties in that culture for calling someone a fool. It was considered to be a pretty significant insult. And notice Jesus now says, you will answer for it before the Sanhedrin. So we've moved from the local law courts for being angry with your brother without cause to the Sanhedrin for taking it out on your brother in the form of insulting him as a fool. So it's escalated in terms of seriousness. And then Jesus says, if a man calls him renegade or raka, is what some translations here say, and it's a bit of an obscure Aramaic term, and it means imbecile or idiot or empty head. So basically it's saying that you lack intelligence. That is quite a strong insult. To call someone a renegade or a raka means to say that You lack intelligence. It was very offensive to call that to someone in public. Jesus says, if you call someone a Raka, you will answer for it in hell fire. And the Greek word here is Gehenna. So on the literal sense here, Gehenna was a real place that they were familiar with. It was in the valley of Gehenna, south of Jerusalem. It was kind of like a burning rubbish dump. Garbage was continually burned there. It was pretty much always on fire. So Jesus takes this literal place of Gehenna and uses it as an image to help his hearers understand what uh, the final judgment or the final state of the damned will be like. So Gehenna, hell, is a real place. Jesus compares it to uh, the place that they were familiar with near Jerusalem called Gehenna. Jesus says, if you call a man Raqqa, you will answer for it in hellfire. Now, we're going to talk a bit about this, so it doesn't necessarily imply that every single insult will result in a person going to hell, but if we follow the context through here, it seems like Jesus here is talking about a pretty strong insult that you give to someone deliberately. Certainly, Jesus is saying that every insult will be considered on judgment day, and Jesus wants his new covenant hearers to be aware of that. So, Jesus wants his followers to focus on their ultimate judgment at the end of their life. So, as is the case with a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is encouraging the crowds to focus on the most important things, rather than just the surface-level exterior stuff. Now, if let's read that whole phrase through again and see if you can notice an escalation here. I say this to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will answer for it before the court, if a man calls his brother fool, he will answer for it before the Sanhedrin. And if a man calls him renegade, he will answer for it in hellfire. So there's kind of three levels here. And it seems like there's an escalation, as a lot of scholars have pointed out. So if this interpretation is, is correct, there's Jesus is talking about degrees of personal guilt in terms of an escalating movement from local judgment, so a local court verdict, to the Jewish Sanhedrin, to then eternal punishment so in terms if this interpretation is right jesus is talking about uh degrees of bad things you can do or bad infringements of you must not kill so jesus says a low level infringement of you must not kill is being angry with your brother without cause that will land you in a local court a more serious infringement is calling him fool that could land you before the sanhedrin and jesus now warns that if you call him idiot or raka that could actually land you in hell. So that seems to be the best way to interpret this whole phrase. At each step, the judgment corresponds to the severity of the sin. That in itself tells us that Jesus doesn't believe that all sins are equal. Some sins are more serious than others. Verse 23. So then, so Jesus is now going to explain a better way of going about it rather than getting angry at your brother. If you are bringing your offering to the altar... Now, Jews would often bring sacrifices or donations as well to the temple in Jerusalem, and they would be collected by the priest. So it was part of Jewish life that you would bring sacrifices to the altar. Jesus says, if you're doing that, and by the way, scholars have pointed out that this verse implies that the temple is still standing at the time the gospel is written. And I think that that's a pretty solid argument. Why, if Matthew wrote after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, why would he talk about Uh, a situation where you're on the way to the temple. It wouldn't really make sense. This seems to be a pretty good argument for suggesting that at the time Matthew wrote, it was before the temple was destroyed, and that is very much in line with the introduction to the Gospel of Matthew that we've offered in this podcast. But that's a bit of a side note. If you are bringing your offering to the altar and there, remember, your brother has something against you. So if you're on the way to the temple and at the temple you remember that there's a certain person you have wronged. There's a person who has something against you because you've wronged them. Verse 24, leave your offering before the altar. This is pretty radical. Jesus says, don't finish the ritual. And the Jews in Jesus' time were all about, or they thought it was all about following the rituals. Jesus says, leave your offering before the altar. And notice Jesus is saying this in the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee. So he might be implying that even if someone has come all the way to Jerusalem from Galilee, And they remember that someone has something against them they need to go back home to galilee and make peace first and then go back to the temple so it's actually a pretty long journey here but jesus says that's what you're going to have to do because internal righteousness is more important go and be reconciled to your brother first and then come back and present your offering this echoes a lot of jesus teachings in the gospels and the teachings of the old testament that sacrifice and rituals without interior righteousness are meaningless. The interior righteousness are what give the exterior acts meaning. Jesus here teaches the crowds that if there's disharmony within ourselves or our relationships we must fix those first and then our rituals will become pleasing to God. So external actions without true repentance and holiness they are not pleasing to God. So once again remember he's saying this to people in Galilee and so Some people think there might be a hyperbole here where he wouldn't literally expect Galileans to make a three-day journey uh, back to Galilee and then back to Jerusalem again, but I don't think we should interpret it as a hyperbole. I think he really expects his followers to be quite serious about being right with people and then coming back and offering their external rituals on the altar. The connection with what Jesus has just said before this is, if there's a dispute with your brother... Rather than insulting him, which could land you in hell, as we've seen, make up with them as quick as possible. So Jesus has basically said, here's the ways you can violate the you shall not kill law. And he's given them kind of three levels of intensity of violating it. And then he said, there's a much better way. Here's a better way to go about it rather than sinning against the commandment. Make up with people as quick as possible. Now notice Jesus doesn't say forget about your offering at the altar, just go sort out the stuff with your friend. He doesn't say forget about it completely. He says sort out the dispute with your brother first and then come back and present your offering. So it's important we understand that Jesus' theology is not that external rituals are not important, just that they are superseded by the internal requirements of righteousness. Verse 25, and then we get to another difficult phrase here. Come to terms with your opponent in good time while you are still on the way to court with him. Now, try and visualize this image here. It doesn't necessarily mean while you're walking down the road to the courthouse. It could mean that, but it probably means sort it out with your brother before it even gets to the courtroom. So Jesus is saying it's much better to sort out the dispute with your brother before it reaches the local court or before it ends up at the Sanhedrin. Or he may hand you over to the judge Remember you in this situation you the Christian disciple are the one who's done the wrong thing and someone has something against you So you kind of deserve to be punished in the Jewish legal system So Jesus says if you don't come to terms with your opponent and make up with him He might hand you over to the judge the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison now That is pretty much how their court system worked. There were Roman prisons and If you have genuinely inflicted grave harm on someone, you could be thrown into prison. We don't know all the details of how the Jewish and Roman systems collaborated or didn't collaborate, but indeed, Jews could end up in prison for infringements against their brothers. And Jesus here seems to be warning them that if you don't make up with them, with your brother, you could actually end up in prison. Verse 26, I tell you solemnly, Jesus is about to say something important here. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is where scholars disagree on how to interpret it. Jesus could still be talking about local law courts on earth, and Jesus is warning his disciples, look, if you do the wrong thing against your brother, you can expect to be put in prison. But there could also be an element of the afterlife in view here. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. It could also be both. If Jesus is just talking about the literal law courts at the time, he's saying this to to the crowds. You had the opportunity to repent and do the Christian thing and make up with your brother, but you didn't, so you actually deserve to be in prison. That's his warning. But you could say that given Jesus has been speaking about heavenly judgment on the last day as well, he certainly said that if you call someone an idiot, you could end up in hell. If we keep that in mind, again here, he could be referring to judgment on the final day. So if that's the right interpretation, this phrase, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny, could mean something in terms of the afterlife. It could mean God will throw you into hell and you will never get out. Some have seen it as a reference to purgatory as well, meaning something like this. As a result of your sin, you will be in purgatory until you have been cleansed, until you have paid the last penny. It could be that. Scholars are a bit divided on whether Jesus has the afterlife in view in verse 26, or if he's just continuing this thought of local law courts could be a real issue if you don't sort out disputes with your brother. So, we've gotten to the end of the first antithesis, the first you have heard how it was said, but there's going to be more to come in the rest of the sermon. If we turn to the Catechism of the Catholic Church here, there's quite a few references to this uh, section of Matthew chapter 5. So, Paragraph 2054, Jesus acknowledges the Ten Commandments, but he also showed the power of the Spirit at work in their letter. He preached a righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, as well as that of the Gentiles. And so that matches very well with what we've said in our exegesis here. Jesus preaches a righteousness that goes beyond the mere letter of the Ten Commandments. Paragraph 2262 is about the Fifth Commandment, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord recalls the commandment, you shall not kill, and adds to it the proscription of anger, hatred, and vengeance. So here, the, C- the Catholic Church clearly teaches that Jesus forbids anger, hatred, and vengeance. Paragraph 2302 is about peace. By recalling the commandment, you shall not kill, our Lord asked for peace of heart and denounced murderous anger and hatred as immoral. Paragraph 678 is about how Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Following in in the steps of the prophets and John the Baptist, Jesus announced the judgment of the last day in his preaching. Then will the conduct of each one and the secrets of hearts be brought to light. Then will the culpable unbelief that counted the offer of God's grace as nothing be condemned. Our attitude to our neighbor will disclose acceptance or refusal of grace and divine love. Paragraph 1034 is about hell. Jesus often speaks of Gehenna, of the unquenchable fire, reserved for those who, to the end of their lives, refuse to believe and be converted, where both soul and body can be lost. So the Catechism does believe, and the Catholic Church teaches that hell is real, because Jesus speaks of it as real. Paragraph 2608. From the Sermon on the Mount onwards, Jesus insists on conversion of heart, Reconciliation with one's brother before presenting an offering on the altar. Love of enemies and prayer for persecutors. And then he goes on to list some other ways that the Sermon on the Mount teaches us how to pray. Paragraph 2845 is about the seven petitions. There is no limit or measure to this essentially divine forgiveness, whether one speaks of sins or debts. We are always debtors. Owe no one anything except to love one another. So paragraph 2845 is picking up on this theme of we need to be at peace with our brothers and we should not owe anyone anything. Uh, And it's talking there about the Our Father in particular. So you can have a look at that paragraph to see the context a bit more there. Paragraph 2845. Paragraph 1424 is about the sacrament of reconciliation. It is called the sacrament of reconciliation because it imparts to the sinner the love of God who reconciles. Be reconciled to God. He who lives by God's merciful love is ready to respond to the Lord's call. Go first be reconciled to your brother. So here this Catholic theology of the sacrament of confession or reconciliation says that those who truly love God and who live in God's love will be ready to respond to Jesus' commandments to be reconciled to our brothers as well. There's a lot of great Catholic theology here in the paragraphs we've looked at. I'll include those in the episode description. By the way, if you're interested in going deeper into the Catechism and studying it paragraph by paragraph, kind of like how we do with the Gospels here, you can actually get access to a paragraph by paragraph audio commentary of the Catechism through the Patreon page for this ministry. So check out the link for that in the episode description uh, if that interests you. Thanks so much for your support of the ministry. Hopefully, you learned something new, and I think you'll agree that diving into this text from the perspective of the literal sense helps open it up a lot more and helps us understand what Jesus was probably trying to get at when he was speaking to his original audience. We'll continue with the Sermon on the Mount in the coming episodes.